Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Rodana Asban, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sukkah, daf Mem Aleph, page 41. We have two great Mishnahs here and a lot of biographical information about the Tanayim, which I want everyone to pay close attention to because everyone knows that's what I particularly love about daf Yomi. Uh, so we'll get started with the first Mishnah here in Amud Aleph. So in the beginning, originally, when the Beit was standing, Lulav was taken in the Beit HaMikdash for seven days, and in the rest of the country, it was only done on the first day of Chad. Once the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, right? And we've talked about it before, and again, we'll get to the really famous Gemara about him when we get to Gittin. Um, but he sort of transformed what Judaism was going to look like um, after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. He made a series of takanot, a series of decrees. And this is one of the decrees um, that we know about. Um, some of the decrees we'll learn about in Masech of Rosh Hashanah have to do with shofar, um, they have to do, here we're going to learn, there's actually two degrees that are talked about on this staff, the one with the Omer and the one with Lulav. Um, but he had a series of nine takanot that he basically made um, that were what the what Judaism was going to be look like or how things were going to be practiced once the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. And so the first one here that's so talked the about is the one, one with Lulav. That the lulav was basically taken everywhere in all seven days. All seven and days. And it makes sense because and once, you don't, sense because once you don't have a Beit HaMikdash, nobody is doing Aliyat Larega, right? People are not coming up to the Beit HaMikdash on a holiday the way that they did because there's just no Beit HaMikdash anymore. So therefore, sort of the core way of how some of these holidays were celebrated, the Chagim were celebrated, fundamentally changes. And so Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai needs to make this change. Um, and then it talks about a second one. Uh, and what's the second one? yom kulo asor. And for a similar reason, right? For similarly, he says that the entire day of waving, it was forbidden. So what we're talking about here, uh, this is specifically talking about the Omer. Was that in order, right? You have Erev Pesach, you basically get rid of like all your chametz and everything. And we, the Omer was basically what needed to happen on Pesach so that people could start eating the new crop of grain. And so what happened is, is that this Omer needed to be brought. It was waved in the temple on the 16th of Nisan. So remember, Erev uh, Pesach is Yudah Nisan, right? That's when all the Shechita of the Korban Pesach happens. The night of the 15th is when you Korban Pesach That is a holiday. That's Chag. And then on the 16th, which is the first day of Cholomoed, right, you would bring up this court, this Omer. Um, and then essentially, uh, this was done then. And then by noon, everybody knew right, people could start eating their new crop of grain, right? Once the, um, but however, once the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, right, uh, it was uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai basically made a takana, which said, that you were not allowed to eat any of that new grain until the 17th. Once you create the Omer and six, it just been. 
push it off to the 17th. So again, when you have the Beit HaMikdash standing, you need to wait until that court that Omer is brought. And usually that was done by the afternoon. And so everyone knew in the afternoon you could start to eat your new grain. When there was no Beit HaMikdash, technically, point of eating your new grain on the morning of the 16th, because you're not going to have an Omer brought in the temple to say it's okay or not okay. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai comes and he says, no, we're going to say that you have to wait until the 17th. So the Gemara that follows with this Mishnah is great, and I would probably read the whole Gemara here, but I'll, I'll just pick out a couple of highlights just for the sake of time. First, the Gemara begins with a great question. Where do we get this idea that we should do anything zecher lemigdash? Concept. We hear many times that we do things to remember the Beit HaMikdash, but where does it come from? How do we know that it's a value or something that we should be doing? I'm a Rabbi Yochanan, so Rabbi Yochanan, it's interesting that the source for it is coming from an Amora, not from a Tana. The earlier generations of Tanaim sort of were much more closely connected to the Beit HaMikdash. Here we're already like six generations away from the Beit HaMikdash, and yet it's an Amora, and yet it's Rabbi Yochanan, it's a first-generation Amora, but he's the one who gives us the source for this. And he quotes here a pasuk from Yirmiyahu, chapter 11, verse 17, to Amakra, ki yale aruchalach umima kotayich erapech nuum Hashem, ki nitchak harulach sion, ki doresh ein So the important part of this pasuk here is it says that Hashem says that Hashem will restore the health unto you and will heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. She is Zion, and there is no one that seeks her out. And the key piece here is Doresh uh, Einla. Uh, no one is seeking out Zion. Doresh Einla, Michlaud Zavayitrisha. And so, what does that mean? That means that Zion, that Yerushalayim, that the Beit HaMikdash needs seeking out. It should be something that's remembered. It should be something that's sought after. And I thought that was a beautiful drasha to explain why do we do all these things that are Zechar Lamikdash. Because we see from the way Yermiyahu talks about all the things that are that happen after Yerushalayim is destroyed, and remember Yerushalayim. This passage is Then the Gemara gets into a good discussion about this thing with the Omer itself. So this is a piece I won't read all of this one of those great discussions again, which we saw in Pesachim, about, you know, what happens if Eliyahu comes, the Mikdash comes, those again, which is that maybe we're not allowing it to be on the seven, that we, that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai made this takana about the new crop until the 17th, because what would happen if the Beit Mikdash was going to be rebuilt and it wasn't rebuilt in time in order for uh, the Korban Omer to be brought on time. And there's sort of this fantastical you know, idea, it's like a fantasy of what it would be like if the Beit HaMikdash needs to get built at that specific time. But finally, after all of that, what is it, you know, it basically, um, you know, concludes, uh, it, its conclusion at the end is, is, is doesn't really have anything to do with that. Um, but what it really has to do is this opinion of ad etzam hayom that when it says that uh, you know when it talks about in Bayikra, when it's talking about the Omer in chapter twenty three verse fourteen and it says it needs to be the etzam of the day that you have to bring this 
can't eat this fresh grain, the new grain, until the etzem. So adshi itzumot shalyom b'kasavar ad ve'ad b'chlau. That when it uses the word etzem, right, it means to include the whole. Rabbi Yochanan says, no, that it needs to be uh, the full 16th, and therefore you can't eat it till the 17th, and not, um, and not the uh, or being allowed to eat it in the morning, the 16th. Excuse me. So I think that we just have a great history lesson. First, these takanot that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai made, this transformation of sort of, you know, post-temple Judaism. We see two of the Takana I've talked about. It's interesting, the Lulav one, there's not a lot of discussion about why they did it, but I for pretty easily because you do it for seven days, so you're just going to let the rest of the country do it for seven days. And this lovely, we do Zechar Lamech. And this is definitely a Gemara that I will go back to for Sabdavar So I just want to comment two things. Um, you said something about this being, you know, it's coming from an Amora as opposed to a Tana. I think also we should note that the situation for the Tanaim, like what the reality was, the degree to which the Roman oppression was, you know, hitting them, it kind of, you know, for the early Tanaim, it wasn't such a big deal. By the time we get to Rav Yochanan and Zakai, and at least according to the story in Gittin, which is not necessarily the historical record, let's be clear about that, but still, we're already up to Vespasian being a general, like it, it's the the it's coming, right? The description, the destruction of the temple, temple is coming. It's there. It's going on, and then the oppression after the Beit Hamikdash was destroyed, right, is is also very real. And by the time of Yochanan and Zakkai is the leader of the Jews in Jerusalem, like the idea of you know getting out of Jerusalem because otherwise they're all going to be totally destroyed was was real. So I think that the idea of needing to shift the um, the focus of Judaism, as it was at that time, from, you know, it, it was already moving away from temple ritual because there wasn't a temple, but it was still a focus on Jerusalem. So the idea that now there had to be a different kind of religion, a decentralized religion that people could implement, you know, wherever they were going to be, I think was huge, you know, really very, very radical. And I don't know whether it would have been accepted to the degree that it was. And it was, I think, in part because there was no alternative. But I think that part of the reason it was accepted also is that it was tied to the Beit HaMikdash. And so it's like a, a true stroke of genius on Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai's part, I think, to say, Mikdash, meaning we are not forgetting about the Mikdash, we are remembering the Mikdash in everything we do that is really very different from anything that ever went on in the Beit HaMikdash, meaning the practices are completely different. They have to be completely different. But the but the but in connecting it to the phenomenon, the, the practice that was originally happening in the Beit HaMikdash, everybody can kind of swallow it and say, yes, yes, and we're going to please God one day build the new temple. And we're still, of course, waiting for that. But like we now have this you know, very clear tradition of so many different things that we connect to the temple in its absence now for millennia. And I, I think that, you know, it all really goes back to these takanot where he he wasn't even yet entrenching a new the the new practice as much as making sure that they, they could have some kind of not leave taking, but you know, acceptance of the fact that they had to do some leave taking of quote the old religion. I mean the, the practices that were no longer going to no longer going to be available to them. Right. To think about different, it must have been 
celebrate these Chagim, where the whole purpose was to come up to the Beit HaMikdash. I mean, this just how they were celebrating. So it would really be a man for future generations. For future and yes, generations. The stroke, and yes, the stroke yes, of genius. To call it a sacred lamentation. Oh, we're saying, oh, we're just doing something different. totally different that's, that's not connected to the temple at all. Okay, so I'm going to now jump to the other Mishnah on the page. Um, the fact is, we could probably talk for a long time either on either Mishnah. Both halves of the daf today are very rich. Yom Tov HaRishon Shachag, Shachal Shabbat. So this happens to be a case that happens now and again, right? Where the first day of Sukkot falls out on Shabbat. Now, before we even begin, we know that there are certain things that took place only in the Beit HaMikdash on the first day of, yeah, of Sukkot. Namely, you know, in terms of the Deoraita. Well, no, I take that back. I, w- I don't want to jump, meaning, hang on. Let, let's read some more text and then we'll get into the details of this. Um, okay, so... The first day of, Yon, of Sukkot falls out on Shabbat. Kol ha'am molichin et lulavehen knesset. So again, this is already after the Beit HaMikdash. We're talking about a time when everybody would bring their lulavim and etrogim to the Beit Knesset on Friday. L'macharat mashkimin uvain. Then on Shabbat day, they would come early to the Beit HaMikdash. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The mission is clear. I'm getting bollocked up. To the Beit Knesset, to the shul. And so the position here is, as it's presented, is that everybody would recognize his own lulav. He would take his own lulav and um, and he would then, you know, take the lulav, which, of course, it's an interesting conundrum because here it's discussing the fact that they would make sure to bring the lulavim to shul before Shabbos because they're not supposed to do any carrying on Shabbat. But at that time, they still would take the lulav on Shabbat. This is not what we do nowadays. Because we have this position, and we've already discussed this, that on the first day of the holiday, you can only fulfill your obligations through your own lulav, not through a borrowed one. But the other days of the, of the holiday, you could borrow one and fulfill your obligation that way. Rabbi Yossi Omer, Yom Tov Harishon Shalchag, Shachal Yopi Shabbat, Vishachach, Vhutsieta Lulav, Lirshuta Rabim, Patur, Mibne Shahutsio Birshut. So Rabbi Yossi gives us an example, a caveat, that if the first day of Sukkot falls out on Shabbat and you forget that, you know, that you're not supposed to be carrying your Lulav out in the public domain on Shabbat, you are not obligated to bring a Korban Chatat for that carrying. Because you carried it, it says, it says, Bershut. you've carried it essentially, essentially with permission. What does it mean with permission? The commentary says, um, because you're so involved with the focus of doing your mitzvah of the lulav, that's why you carried it. You weren't, it's not that you set out to carry everything on Shabbat, just your lulav for the sake of lulav. So again, this is not what we do nowadays. Nowadays, we don't take a lulav on Shabbat lest we have to carry it to bring it to shul, which is, you know, you know, it's a, it's a, the child, so to speak, of this Mishnah. Okay. Now, the Gemara talks about um, exactly how we get to this. How do, how do we know this? How do we get to this? From the verse, again, from Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 23, the verse says, you shall take Meaning, you shall take the the dalaminim because everybody's going to take the lulav and etrog 
each person. And then lachem, and we've seen this many times already, when it says lachem, it's misha lachem. It is um, your, it's supposed to be your arba minim. Meaning you can't borrow it and you also can't use one. You cannot fulfill your mitzvah through a stolen one, which is kind of like reminding us that we've already talked about how you can't fulfill your mitzvah through any one of these arbaminim having been stolen, right? It can't be dry and it can't be stolen. And by the way, here it says again, it can't be borrowed and it can't be stolen. I'm wondering here, Dina, just how big of a problem was stealing a lulav and a frogan. Um, okay, so then the Gemara goes on. Well, I, 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 I think it's clear. I'll just say one thing. I think it's clear they weren't that common to have. There were periods of time where it was where it was hard to have, and human nature human nature made people stole them. Okay, I hear that. I'm just I'm just a little dismayed to think that that might have happened for a little of an etrog. We know plenty, okay. of, plenty of people who steal people things. Who steal things. So, I know, oh, yeah. I know. I don't have to like it. I don't have to like it. There, there. Okay, now. And here, in this little tiny piece of Gemara, like a, a, almost as an aside, we hear the caveat that makes all of the Lulav and Minotrogim work as long as they're not actually stolen. Right, and it, instead of borrowing the lulav and etrog, if the owner gives it to you as a matana, as a present, now you can use it, and it is yours even on the first day of yantif because you've had it as a present. And if you happen to also give it back to the original owner as a present, that is also acceptable. Um, right, meaning that that this works. And now we've got, and over the course of the rest of the draft, there's several brief stories that I think are very illustrative. I'm going to try to capture them quickly. You'll recognize these names from the Haggadah, right? They're not in a cave in Bnei Brak. They're on, they're on a ship. They're traveling in a ship. Only Rabban Gamliel had a lulav. And that meaning, right, how are you going to do this if you're supposed to own it on the first day of the holiday? Um, so he had bought it for a thousand zoos. That's a good sum of money. So he took his lulav and etrog and he benched and he was yote his, his obligation. So Exactly as you would suspect, each one in turn bar- was given the lulav, meaning I don't want to say borrowed, was given from the previous owner, right? So Rabbi Gamliel gives it to Rabbi Yoshua, and Rabbi Yoshua gives it to Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, meaning each one of them benches lulav along the way, and then gives it, you know, Rabbi Lazar gives it to Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva gives it back to Rabbi Gamliel. And then the Gemara says... Why do we even have to say that Rabbi Kiva gave it back to Rabbi Gamliel? Because we learned something like by the, by the, along the way of having this piece of, of text, in case you weren't sure what, when I was a child, there were other, like there were casual names, right? Like no gives these, no backs, these, all these kinds of like child games that, you, you know, if, 
once you've given something away, can you really give it back? Would it even count? And here the Gemara says, in fact, yes. If you give a if you give a present on condition or expectation that it be returned to you afterwards, later, it is still considered a present. You are still considered the owner at the time that you own it. So that's one very important caveat, and it's learned here from from look at these sages. Meaning these are these are not slouches that they would that they would come up with a halakhic solution. You know, in such a it's a creative solution. We do it nowadays whenever it's needed. You know, and the fact that there was a need for it that they didn't go traveling all of them with their own little vinetrog. I think that speaks here, Dana, to the truth of what you're saying that they didn't have so many just you know around the way we would nowadays. Um, okay. And then the Gemara asks, I'm jumping a little bit. The Gemara says, Why do we have to know how much Rabbi Gamliel paid for it? So you could know just how important it was to do these mitzvot, meaning it was a huge sum of money, and yet he paid it, you know, because to make sure that he could, in order to make sure that he could have a lulav to bench on. Right, um, but I right. think the but other important piece here is, Rebbe Gamliel is, is the Nassim. He's from a very prominent very family. He's wealthy. He's wealthy. So just sure. that's showing you sort of how Rebbe Gamliel is very poor. So these are small biographical details so we pick up in these stories that I think really flesh out the personalities of the society. Right. It also shows that as much as he was, you know, willing, it was so important to him to pay that money. It's not that there's an expectation that all of them would pay that same money. I wonder if they worked this out in advance, this this present scheme, because otherwise wouldn't somebody have found like a cheaper one? I don't know. Um, Okay. And here we have another narrative again to illustrate these points. I think they're very helpful. So Mar Baramemar says to Rav Ashi that his father would pray with the four species, with the Dalad Minim, in his hand, meaning, again, like as, a, as an expression of his love, he's keeping them near to him. And then the Gemara objects to this. So the Gemara says, one second. You should, you're not supposed to hold tefillin in your hand. You're not supposed to have a Torah scroll in your lap and daven at that same time, right? You're not supposed to urinate with any mitzvah um, item in your hand. You're not supposed to sleep with them. You're not supposed to, whether it's a deep sleep or a nap, you're not supposed to do these things. Like you're supposed to be focused on the mitzvah when you do the mitzvah and when you're doing something else, you should be doing something else and not hold the, um, you know, these items that are mitzvah items I guess, lest there be some kind of disrespect, you know, with regard to them. The Amr Shmuel. So Shmuel says, Sakin kikar So Shmuel says, well, if you've got a knife and a bowl of food, a loaf of bread, money, you know, these items are all similar to the items mentioned above. What does that mean? They're all things that you would like hold as important that you're going to hold on to. Hatam love mitzvaninu. But to read bo, So the idea is that you could be able to keep your concentration, right? If you can hold on to your knife, can't you hold on to your lulav and keep a pen, keep your attention? And the Gemara says, well, um, they're not exactly the same because you know the ones that are connected to the uh, the performance of mitzvot are the things that you're supposed to be preoccupied in your mind, right? As opposed to 
your bowl of food or your knife, whatever, and the concern that you might end up being distracted from your tefillah because you're holding mitzvah items is a really interesting conundrum, I think, meaning the Gemara is not concerned that you're going to be distracted by your food if you're davening, you're davening. Don't worry, you're just holding on to this thing. You don't have to pay any attention to it. But mitzvot, apparently, again, because it's a sign of how chaviv, how beloved they were to his father, the concern of the Gemara is that they might have actually distracted him. And then the Gemara says, and this is, I think, our last story, Tani Omer, Yerushalayim. So we have a story here. This is the practice of the people of Jerusalem. So a person would leave his house holding on to his lulav. Holding on to his lulav, he'd go to the shul, the synagogue. All that time that he's in shul and he's actually davening, right? This is to flesh out the story of Marbar Meimar's father. So the time that he's in shul, he says shema, he Davin's the Amida, he says his prayers, he's holding on to his lulav. When you're reading the Torah, or if you're Kohen and you're going to do Berkat Kohenim, right? Those are the times that you would take your lulav, you'd set it down to rest on the ground. Here are mitzvot that you would keep your lulav holding on to your lulav, namely, if you go to visit the sick or if you go to be Menachem Avil, you go to pay a shiva call. Nichnas uh, leveta midrash. But if you go into the study hall, mishager lulavo biyad beno uviyad avdo uviyad shlucho. But if you go into the study hall where you're going to sit to study Torah, then send your lulav home. And you, but you have to make sure that you trust the person that you send it with. So put it in the hands of your son or your servant or your or a shaliach that you have appointed. Then you don't just leave it around. You make sure that it gets home safely. And then the Gemara wants to know, what, my Kamashmalan, what is all this going to teach us? Teach us. The Gemara says, this is how vigilant and how careful they were in mitzvot, how much they would um, be careful about them, how much, how dear the mitzvot were to them, that they would, you know, when you would hold on to your lulav, even as you're doing other mitzvot, and when you would not. And then this, uh, this daf really ends. Is this true? This is really the daf ends, yes. Um, okay, that's it. Meaning the next line really connects the, to the coming daf. So I think the idea here is that, you know, throughout we've been paying attention to all of these details, really pretty hardcore details about these particular species and what they have to be to be kosher and where you can get them and they can't be dry and they can't be stolen. How do you take them and this and that? How do you use them in hollow? And now we, the Gemara takes a step back and says, okay, all of those details are the details. And let's pay attention to the love of the mitzvot that we see from the Tanaim, from the Amoraim. And really, I think from, you know, people are in this generation as well. We could say people do find these mitzvot to be very beloved. It's a great app. I love the stuff. I love the stuff. It's one of my faves. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff and how beloved mitzvot are to you. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.